a Bible, if you don't already have one, we're going to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. If you were with us last week, we had a guy named Jeff McGuire who spoke uh, on a very controversial passage. I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, he did a great job. There's some, uh, I just want to take a different angle on it. And so uh, I invite you to join us. If you were here for the first time, welcome. There are seats right here. Unless you want to sit this direction, in which case you do get my best side. Uh, but there are seats right here, right there, right there, right here. You want to go right there, really? All right. Um, and if you need a Bible, go ahead and let one of our, our ushers know, and they will hand you one of these blue Bibles. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, Paul is talking about being filled with the Spirit of God, being subject and governed. Good morning, you guys. Subject and governed to the Spirit of God. We use the idea uh, of a balloon versus a cup in terms of what filling represents, that we're to be progressively filled up by God. And, um, and, and Paul talks about things that happen when a church is filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then he identifies, in Greek, they're called five present participles. Five results that happen when a church uh, is filled with the Spirit. They speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They sing, they make music, they give thanks. And then there's a fifth one that we don't normally talk about because there's a paragraph break and a new heading and and our English Bibles make it seem like he's now talking about something else. But the fifth one is in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for God. And then he, then he continues, and again, there's a period, and it's a new sentence, a new paragraph, you think he's talking about something else. He says, wives, submit to your husbands, or excuse me, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So let's close in prayer, right? I mean, that just is so abundantly clear. Now... If you're here and you're not a huge fan of church or Christianity, this might be one of the reasons why. This is, to say the least, one of the more uh, misapplied and misunderstood passages uh, in our New Testament. So, to make sense of this, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Flip all the way to the beginning of your Bible. Good morning. You look thrilled to be sitting in the front row. Not even remotely. All right. I wouldn't be either, because then you've got to pretend to be interested. Now, Genesis chapter 1. This portion of our message is sponsored by the phrase, no duh. Okay, so God creates, and it is good. And this poem that has a refrain over and over and over. God creates, it is good. God creates, it is good. He gets to human beings. Verse 27, so God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, this is the obvious bit, but in Genesis 1, man's created in the image of God, woman's created in the image of God. There is no hint of inferiority. They are both and utterly and absolutely equal in God's sight. Amen? Also, What's interesting, it's not readily apparent in English, is that both male and female are needed to fully reflect the image of God. 
In other words, man by himself doesn't reflect the full image of God. Woman by herself doesn't reflect the full image of God. Only together do they reflect the full image of God. Now jump to Genesis chapter 2. So the Bible opens, utterly and absolutely equal. Genesis chapter 2, and Adam is roaming around the animal kingdom by himself. And this, in a series of texts that say, it is good, it is good, it is good. This is the only thing that's not good. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable what? Helper. Now, doesn't that kind of sound like an administrative assistant or something? I mean, in English, it's kind of like, well, I I created the really important guy, but he needs some help, so we'll create like a maid or something. I mean, it just sounds ridiculous in English. And and that's a problem because in Hebrew... This word helper is the word azir. And it's used, it's a really strong word that's used of God. So when David calls God his rescuer, his helper, that's the word. So you could translate it, (laughs) I will create for Adam a rescuer. In other words, it's not good that he is alone, I will create a rescuer for him. And all the ladies said, amen. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, perfect equality, absolute intimacy. Genesis 2 ends, the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. There was no sense of of superiority or inferiority. Again, all of this is really obvious. That lasts for all of two chapters in the Bible. Because in Genesis chapter 3, they screw this thing up. Right? There's one tree they're not allowed to eat the fruit of. And yet, they go eat the fruit of that tree. And what's fascinating is when they sin... They don't go rob a bank. They get in an argument. Like that's their first response. They hide from God. And then God says, well, why are you guys hiding? And Adam, the guy, says, well, this wife you gave me, it's her fault. Right? No one teaches him how to do this. And and the wife says, well, you know that talking snake that was in the garden? It's the talking snake's fault. And what God does, interestingly enough, is that God, as an act of mercy curses the world and he does this to make life difficult so that we would not be able to make life work apart from him now that's a whole other message i mean the genius of what god does here is is pretty epic because the man is made from the ground he's named in relationship to the ground his name is adam the hebrew word for ground is adama And the idea is the man was made to find meaning, purpose, and significance in working the ground. We don't have time to look at it, but God curses the ground so that it will not be fruitful for the man. The woman comes from the man in the biblical account and is named in relationship to the man. And so God curses that relationship so that meaning, purpose, and significance won't be found in that relationship She, like the man, will be driven back to find meaning, purpose, significance with God. He does this as an act of mercy, knowing our rebellious hearts. Now, we could talk, like, lots about that. But notice what God says in chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And all the moms said, yes, that is true, unfortunately. Thank you, Lord, for epidurals. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. And then notice this phrase. This is the important phrase for our purposes. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the word desire 
is not sexual desire, unfortunately, guys. The word is the desire to master or control. And the word rule, husbands will rule over their wives, is the desire to subjugate and dominate. Is this what God intended when he created? No. Absolute intimacy and equality. But now, under the fall, male-female relationships are struggles for power. And all the married couples said? A minor amen. One of the things you soon realize after you... um, outlast your honeymoon is that you married a sinful person and they married one too and that there's a reason why money and sex are the things we argue about most because those are fundamentally power issues and so genesis 1 opens and genesis 2 open with this incredible picture of intimacy and equality but now under the fall Instead of intimacy and equality, there's blaming, there's shaming, there's arguing, and ultimately a quest for power. The man's predominant response to the woman will be to subjugate and to dominate, and the woman's predominant response to the man will be to control, master, or fix. That's not the way God intended it to be, but it is, however, the way that it is. Now, in Roman culture, when this was written, Ephesians, when the book of Ephesians was written, Male dominance was written into Roman law. Men were the absolute and utter heads of the households in Roman law. They had a very fancy Latin title that meant that they had the power of life and death over their families. They could beat and and kill their slaves. They could throw their wives out. They could, uh, if a child was born into the household that was unfitting, or undesirable, they could literally, all they had to do was turn the back on the child, the child will be discarded. Uh, Men uh, had power over their children to kill them, to beat them. I mean, it was ridiculous. So Genesis 3 was codified into Roman law. And men were the head of the household because women were considered inferior. It wasn't just that, hey, we choose guys because they're bigger. No, no, no. It was women were considered inferior in the first century. Mondo, fire up the PowerPoint. So this is Apollodorus. Apollodorus says, we have prostitutes for sexual pleasure. We have female slaves to take care of our bodies. And then we have wives. (laughs) For neither of those two purposes, their job is to bear us children and to manage the household. Literally, under Roman law, a husband was obligated only to provide a roof over her head to a wife, and the opportunity to bear children. He didn't owe her date nights. He didn't owe her marriage conferences. He didn't owe her her love language. (laughs) Nothing except a roof over her head and the opportunity to bear children. That was it. So here's Aristotle. Aristotle was kind of a smart fellow, but got this one wrong. He argued that if, if in utero a fetus went full term, it would be male. But that if something interrupted its development, it would be female. <laughs> right. Women were seen as incomplete men. Right. Sir, don't leave. It's going to get better. <laughs> now, and then lastly, if you wanted to thank the gods, uh, here's what a man would pray. God, I thank you that I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. I thank you that I'm human and not an animal. But most of all, I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. Okay? 
So this was Roman culture. In Ephesus, the book is called Ephesians because it's written to a city called Ephesus. Ephesus in the first century was the center of the worship of the goddess Artemis. Here she is. She is foxy. There's no question about it. Artemis was the predominant deity of that region. And in fact, her temple was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was on 70,000 acres. It was amazing and it was epic. And, and the reason Ephesus prospered, it was thought, was because Artemis blessed it. Artemis, you could not think of Ephesus without thinking of her. Paradoxically, she was the goddess of virginity and the goddess of reproduction. And, and what you would do if you wanted the goddess to be uninhibited towards you, because if you had a healthy child, it was Artemis who did it. She was called Lord and Savior and God. If you wanted your business to expand, you would make sacrifice to Artemis. In fact, there was a month-long festival in our March and April called the Artemisia. Over a million people would show up to this thing. Ephesus was about 200, 250,000. Normally, a million people would show up. Because... If virginity was sacred, and it was, and reproduction was sacred, and it was, you know the act that you do to move from one to the other? You know that thing? Do you know what I'm talking about? You guys are all looking at me like, hmm? I have young kids. I can't, like, younger kids here, I mean, I have young kids anyway. But that act was considered sacred too. And so the way that you would worship Artemis during this month is that you would engage in temple prostitution with as many prostitutes as possible. And can you see why a million men would show up, right, to worship Artemis during this month? But the thought of a man loving his wife or being faithful to his wife, it never crossed anybody's mind. I mean, male dominance was written into law, but also was male infidelity. Literally, if you wanted the goddess to be uninhibited, you had to be uninhibited towards her. And this was the way you did that. Now, that Genesis picture, that Roman picture, and that Ephesian picture give us just a glimpse into how revolutionary what Paul's going to say would have been. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's read it again. We could, I mean, you know, there's so much more to be said. I mean, there's so much about Artemis worship that Paul actually makes reference to in this stuff. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how smart God is. And it's, it's almost like he knows us. And, um, and in Ephesians 5, go, jump back to verse 21 again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Would that, have, would that command have been revolutionary in the first century? No! Wives, submit to your... That's what they're there for. Right? That would not have been revolutionary at all. But the thing that's interesting, notice in our English Bibles, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, period. And then it starts a new paragraph. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. This is a highly misleading English translation, and they're all this way. Here's how the Greek reads. Go ahead, throw it up there, Mondo. That's right, we're busting out some Greek for you this morning, kids. 
I want, to, I want to point out a couple of things. Notice uh, the beginning of verse 21. See that big, long Greek word that we translate submit? Do you notice that word? Yes. Okay, thank you. just want to make sure I'm not alone. That word doesn't mean be a doormat. That word means, that Greek word means to place in an orderly way, to place the well-being of another ahead of your own. Or to say it just slightly differently, to place your well-being under the well-being of another. That's what the word submit means. And it means we do this all the time. So I'm driving in this morning. I hit a red light. Is there anything physically stopping me from keeping going? No, I mean, I can still go if I wanted to be, you know, ridiculous. I can still go. And does the red light reflect my interests in driving? No, it's interrupting my interests, right? I want to keep going. If, if it were up to me, the carpool lane would be renamed the Mike Erie exclusively used lane, and we'd have Carmageddon every weekend just so I could drive the freeways by myself. If it were up to me, every light would be green that I come upon, right? I mean, that, my interests are in conflict with the red light, right? And yet... I subordinate my interest for the sake of something bigger. So I've submitted myself to traffic law. So submission is something you and I do all the time. Whenever we take what we would prefer and place it under the well-being or interest of another person or people. Make sense? So that's what the word submit means. Then there's this other word that we translate one another and just... FYI, it's a word that means a relationship between two equals. If Paul wanted to talk about an inferior submitting to a superior, he would have used a different word. So he says, and notice, is verse 21 written to anyone in particular? Submit each other, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Is that written to anybody in particular or is it written to the whole church? Okay, we're in a section where... Paul is writing, hey church, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. And what happens is you'll sing, you'll make music, you'll give thanks, and then you'll submit to each other. Right? So it's not qualified in any way. And then notice, there's a comma after verse 21. Verse 21 doesn't end Paul's thought. And then it says, literally in Greek, submit to each other a reverence for Christ, comma, wives to your husbands. Now, in verse 22, does it say, wives, submit to your husbands? Does it say that? No. It just, the verse literally reads, wives, your husbands. Now, the only way we can make sense of what wives to your husbands means is we got to go find a verb. We have an object, we have a subject, and we got to go on a verb hunt. Have we come across a verb recently? Yeah, Submit. So here's the way the sentence reads. Are you ready? The predominant posture of every disciple to every other disciple is to place the well-being of yourself under the well-being of others. Comma, wives, do this to your husbands. It's an example of the greater principle. You cannot separate wives submit to your husbands because the verse doesn't read that way. It literally reads wives to your husbands. So if if anyone says to you, hey, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. That's not what it says. It just says wives to your husbands. It doesn't say anything else. 
It makes no sense apart from verse 21, which says, submit to each other. The predominant characteristic of every disciple is to submit to each other, comma, wives, do this to your husbands. So much harm has been done, yanking this verse out of context, in totally not God-honoring ways or God-intended ways. Now, even then, would this have been revolutionary in the first century? Not really. Wives, of course, submit to your husbands. Here's what would have been revolutionary. Are you ready? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Did you owe them love? No. You owed them a roof and the opportunity to bear children. And what Paul's going to do See, we think Paul is anti-woman. That is the last thing he would have been called in the first century. You're looking at the world's first feminist outside of Jesus of Nazareth. If by feminism you mean equality and how that plays out, absolutely. Because what Paul's saying, hey, wives, make it your general principle to submit yourself to everybody. And then do this to your husbands. And husbands, make it the general posture of your life to submit yourselves to everybody but love your wives. That's what would have been revolutionary. There's a reason why more women than men followed Jesus in the first century. Sociologically, that is a true statement. And the reason was this so undercut male domination in the household. That a man, instead of worshiping the goddess Artemis for that month, would love his wife. That a man instead of having prostitutes and female slaves, would love his wife. And that a man... And and here's the problem. If he just stopped with husbands love your wives, I could get away with thinking I actually do that. Well. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. So when Paul talks about the man being the head of the house, understand what he is referencing is how Jesus is head of the church. And Jesus' headship is never about power, it's about sacrifice. So men, whether you're single or you're married, this applies to you. In your relationships with women, you are head sacrificer. You are head servant. The predominant posture of every disciple is to place the well-being of others ahead of their own. Paul says this all over the place. Wives, do this to your husbands. Because the man is the head of the woman the way that Christ is the head of the church. And that just sounds so sexist until you understand the whole metaphor. Just in the same way that Jesus sacrificed himself for the church, men, sacrifice yourselves for your wives. In other words, until you've died for her, you have room to grow. Would you agree? Why is it so quiet? (laughs) I thought this was about wives doing what we tell them. See, this is what got Paul into hot water. It wasn't wives submit to your husbands. Are you kidding me? It was this. Husbands, give up your lives 
for your spouses. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And the reason, he says, is because the, wife, the husband and wife are now one flesh. So he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. And then he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. In other words, husbands and wives, you can't refer to yourselves as like distinct entities in a marriage. You're one. So Paul appeals first to the example of Jesus. And then he appeals to masculine self-interest by saying, listen, you're one with her, so taking care of her is also taking care of you, and the way you take care of you is the way you should take care of her. Exactly. And then, he doesn't stop there. He says, verse 33, however, I am talking about Christ and the church. So he says, love your wives as you love your own bodies, for the two will be married and become one flesh. And then he says, but I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about the church. What? You were just talking about marriage. Do you see what Paul's just done? He's just said the purpose of marriage isn't marriage. The purpose of marriage is to give a picture of Jesus' love for his people. To say it a different way, and maybe you'll disagree, that's fine, but I'm right. (laughs) There is not one single Bible verse that says there is some one person of the opposite sex out there who will complete you and make you happy. And if that's what you think marriage is for, you you will be in trouble very quickly in your marriage. Instead, The scriptures teach marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And the purpose of the covenant is to put on display for a world that is sick of our talking what the gospel looks like. It's a picture. It's a testimony. It's a witness. And then notice what Paul says. Verse 33. However, each one of you should also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Do you see what Paul's done? Genesis 3, the predominant posture of the man will be to dominate his wife. And what's Paul say? Under spirit-filled leadership, the man will not dominate but will sacrifice instead. And the predominant posture of the woman to the man will be to control and fix. And instead, under the leadership of God's spirit, she will now respect and place the well-being of the husband ahead of her own. Does that sound like he's just reversed the curses of Genesis 3 to you? Does it sound like Jesus, interestingly enough, is interested more than just forgiving us, but actually restoring us for that which we were intended to begin with? And does it sound like if a man loved his wife in that way, and a woman loved her husband in that way, does that sound like that could almost look like a living breathing picture of the love of Jesus for his people to you see this is the intention it's not hey get married to meet your needs that's what I want it to be 
But instead, Paul is reversing the curses of Genesis 3 by saying what Jesus wants to do is rearrange the predominant way we relate to each other. In my marriage, and by the way, men, if you're here and you are not happy with me, first of all, I didn't write this, and secondly, my wife's heard this already, and it's come back to haunt me already. Because is this how I relate to her? Do I walk around saying, honey, how can I die to myself today to serve you? (laughs) No. I usually lead with, well, what's for dinner? And did you pick up the dry cleaning? I mean, I'm horrible. The predominant posture of my heart isn't what can I give, it's what can I get. This is my Genesis 3 nature, right? And so the invitation of Jesus isn't hey, dude, you're the head of the house. You call the shots. Nope, it's, guess what? You get the privilege of embodying my love to my church in the way that you treat her. But then I say, and I can hear some of you thinking this, you don't know the woman I live with. (laughs) But if Jesus is the model, then, I know, she did so good. She She was doing great. If Jesus, I know, if Jesus is the model, then Paul says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us, right? So guess what? That means we sacrifice for her. Even if she's not lovable. Because he sacrificed for us before we were worthy, before we were deserving. There is no deserving. So literally, the posture of men to their wives is regardless of how lovable she is, you serve. And you sacrifice. And ladies, regardless of how respectable he is, you love and respect. Now does that sound impossible? To some of us, absolutely. And so, is there grace and is there forgiveness? I mean, of course, there's forgiveness and restoration. But you have to understand, let's not use our imperfection as an excuse to minimize what's being written. What's being written is, regardless of how lovable she is, love her, and regardless of how respectable he is, respect him. Because what I want to do is I want to look at my sweetie and I want to say, honey, I'll serve you if you respect me. And my sweetie says, well, I'll respect you if you serve me. And I'll say, no, 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 you respect me first and I'll serve you. And she says, no, 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 no. I mean, I'll respect you only if you serve me. And then it's just another power struggle. And I'm convinced that it's on the dude to take the initiative to serve. If there's food for three and you're a family of four, who goes without? Guy. If there's some nasty thing that needs to be done, if, you need, if somebody needs to work 18 jobs, if somebody needs to protect, provide, and care for, and nourish, it's the guy. What? Isn't that why you have kids? Yes, that is why you have children. That's a different sermon. Because with children, all they're interested in doing is torturing us, right? Now, (laughs) boyfriends, do you think 
that simply becoming married changes your character. No. You will, you will be married to her in whatever way you dated her. So ladies, you're single. Does he serve you? Do you see a willingness to place your well-being ahead of his own? Is he a threat to your purity or protector of it? Does he demand his needs be met? I mean, and if you think his ladies, I'm going to stereotype you right now. Here's what I know about you. And this is true of my wife. I thought my wife was marrying a stud muffin. She thought she was marrying a fixer-upper. Right? I've seen very often, God bless you ladies, but you marry a man's potential and not the man's reality. Right? So literally, I mean, this is what happened with my wife and I. I'm a slob. I mean, I have three piles of laundry in my room. Dirty, clean, and kind of clean. And then one pile would, you know, grow smaller while the other pile... And then, I mean, I would have dishes that would sit in the sink soaking for weeks until I would just throw them away because there was some sort of growth on them. I mean, it was awful. And my wife, God bless her, she says this with a straight face. She just thought, well, once we got married, I just thought you wouldn't be like that anymore. Why would you think that? And so, the invitation is to love and respect the dude you got. And to love and respect the woman you have. Because ladies, you have to know, masculinity is defined for us in terms of conquering and achievement and success. My images of masculinity aren't Jesus washing his disciples' feet. They're William Wallace, right? They're Maximus. Those are my images of masculinity. It's not Jesus giving himself up for the sins of the world. I need help being reprogrammed. That glory is in the sacrifice. That true masculinity is found in that sacrifice. And ladies, every time you check out, you are bombarded with demonic images that are totally airbrushed and totally unreal that tell you to be lovely, you've got to be nipped and tucked. I mean, and we all know they airbrush them. We all know they're fake. And yet, millions of our girls are starving themselves. And yet, many have unhealthy relationships with food just to live up to this arbitrary standard of what is beautiful in our world. And so men, they need us to delight in them as they are. Not as them as we'd want them to be. And ladies, we need you to respect us and to love us into our future by loving us as the men that we are, not as the men we should be. And what happens when people start treating each other this way is that you get a picture of the Gospel of Jesus. I have a friend in his 70s, waited till his 40s to get married. Married a young lady, no fault of her own through trauma in her childhood. Became so paralyzed with anxiety and fear, so clammed up, she can't go out of her house and has been this way for decades. And this man 
out of sheer, sometimes, just sheer obedience, loves her and serves her. Now what does the world see when it sees that done in the name of Jesus? It sees the gospel. I have dear friends, the wife had an affair. The husband, excuse me, had an affair. And the wife, she finds out about this, devastated. And they begin, I mean, I can't even, I don't even have words strong enough to talk about the surgery they went through emotionally to get back to the place where their marriage is flourishing. I have seen God do such amazing things. I know some of you are here and this brings up nothing but pain. I know this. Some of you are thinking, man, I really wish my wife were like this or I really wish my husband were like this or my boyfriend or whoever. I get that. And of course there's grace and mercy. Of course. But the invitation really is still to love her even though she's not always lovable and to respect him even though he's not always respectable and to do this out of reverence for Christ. The reason God hates divorce isn't because He's up there going, well guys, you know, you really jacked this one up. It's because it destroys a picture of the Gospel. And I know many of us are divorced. I get that. And I know in Christ there's no condemnation. I get it. Yes. We're forgiven. Yes. But let's not allow our imperfection to diminish the invitation. That men, in ever-increasing, yet ever-imperfect ways, you would place her well-being ahead of your own, and that you would begin to die to your entitlements and sacrifice to serve her. And that ladies, that you would ever-increasingly, although ever-imperfectly, Respect and love your man as he is, not as you want him. And ladies, would you respect a man who served you in that way? Of course you would. And men, would you serve a woman who respected you in that way? Of course you would. God is interested in reversing all of the effects of sin and death. We come into this place as incredibly wounded people and often wounded most by the people closest to us. Would you agree? There isn't one marriage in this room that doesn't have build up of pain and disappointment. There isn't one single person in this room who hasn't felt betrayed or abandoned who hasn't wrestled with loneliness and whether or not they're lovable or desirable. This is where we live. And the Gospel isn't just some pie-in-the-sky forgiveness transaction that takes place in heaven someday. It's the invitation to live the life of the Kingdom of God now. Regardless of what you did yesterday or what you did last year. But to step into it now. And believe me, brothers, as my two and a half year old boy started crying out at six in the morning 
on a day when I've got to preach four times. And I remember thinking to myself, if I pretend I'm asleep, she'll get him. Now, man, don't you look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I have, and I tell you this dumb stuff because I am an idiot. And I never want to say, hey, I got it. Man, I don't got it. But you know what I do? I want it. I want my children to understand what Jesus is like because of how I treat her. And I I want a divorce-happy culture to realize my wife and I have our share of disappointments with each other, but those are irrelevant to the choice we have to love. I want that. And I want it for you. Because if we really do believe that to save your life you must lose it, this is where it plays out. So would you stand up? I've been yapping too much. And I'd, rather, I'd much rather end with some singing. But instead, you're going to have to listen to the smooth sound of my voice praying a blessing over you. Would you close your eyes? For some of you, this is incredibly painful. And it drags up all sorts of really bad stuff. And I want you to know two things. Of course there is a place for work and separation. Of course there is a place for people to come in and for help to be given, of course. But it's all done with the point of reconciling. Of course there is grace for those of us who've really messed it up. Of course. There is forgiveness. Of course. Second chances. Renewal. Restoration. Yes. Yes to all of it. Our God is the God who does this. And yes, there is a spirit that lives in you that if you open yourself up to him will actually teach you to live in this way. And if you're sitting here thinking this sounds impossible, that's absolutely right. That is exactly why Paul includes this in a section on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's not natural to us. We're going to have some folks up front if we can just pray for you but I want to pray over you as we go. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I ask you, Almighty God, to grace us with the presence and power of your Spirit and to awaken us to the ways in which we not only fall short, but the ways in which we are loved by you into our futures and graced by you in our presence, and forgiven by you for our pasts, that we can actually begin to love each other in a pale imitation of how you love us. And I pray, Jesus, that you would wage war in the heavens for the marriages and the relationships in this room. And that you would bring hope and healing, and freedom. And so we go, God, desperately needing 
your touch. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in grace and peace, brothers and sisters.